As we come to this last chapter of Hebrews together, um, just a couple things before we begin. One is to remember that this is, it comes to us in the form of a book. We call it the book of Hebrews, but it's a letter. And uh, we've heard all through that uh, the subjects of this letter are the first generation Hebrew Christians following Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. <clears throat> all those events would have happened within about 30 years of the readers reading this letter, okay? Which isn't long. Um, we've just celebrated the uh, 50th anniversary of the events of Dr. King's death, and 50 years doesn't seem that long. Well, we're probably closer within 30 years of the events of Christ's own life as the readers would have read this. So it's, it's not a long time since those things had occurred. And uh, the writing comes to them to encourage them in their um, path, their journey as brand new Christians having come out of an entire lifetime, generations, families, history of living within the Hebrew community, um, worshiping according to the old covenant law, and now everything has changed. And so Paul has, I say Paul, that gives away my, um, my uh, thought about who may be writing this. But uh, the writer constantly um, returns to encourage them along the path of what it means to make the transition from old covenant faith to new covenant faith in Christ. Um, it's a letter. And as we come to this, first, this uh, 13th chapter, it gets a lot more personal. We've, we've done a lot of heavy slugging, and we want to commend all of you for uh, hanging in there through some of the difficult passages here in the, in the sections from chapter 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, where uh, it, it's not easy for us on this side of history and on this side of the new covenant to slug through all those sacrifices and what it means to have high priests and all that. Um, it's so important to us in our, in our New Testament faith to know those things as well, though. And I hope it's been an encouragement and an enrichment to your life as we've done those things. But this last chapter it gets more personal. And it has the character of a letter in the sense that um, when you receive letters, if you still receive letters, okay, I was trying to think, when was the last time I actually got a traditional letter, like in the mail, that somebody may have literally written, you know? Hard to remember, actually. But, you know, when you get one or used to get one, um, right toward the end of the body of the letter, normally would come some personal thoughts. Just some, and you kind of anticipate that, because as somebody signs off, they, they're going to say some personal things, maybe to you. And that's what we've got here in chapter 13. I was thinking about this, um, and along these lines, I, when I was a, a university student, I ended up being a history major. Um, everybody wondered why that was, because at the time, the economy in Southern California did not support history majors. It did not support teachers. Um, it was a bad time for all of it. 
And uh, the fact is, at that point, history seemed to be the only thing that really um, got me excited in my studies. So that was my choice. And little did I know within God's providence that I could not have had a better background for what it is that I've been spending the last 40 years doing in ministry. Because the study of history gives us this big picture, the broad uh, expanse, and makes you think in terms of big movements, not just little points during the, the, the process. Um, and so part of my history studies involved doing some research, which I did um, locally there in the LA area. But then as, as things developed, I realized that, you know, there might be an opportunity to do some things related to my history studies um, that I haven't had the opportunity to do. So here's what's happened. Um, just cut to the chase, over the, over the years, whether we've been on vacation or traveling in different cities where there are universities and so forth, uh, I've learned to go to the university library and ask to be admitted to the archive section, okay? Now this without any credentials, no reason why anybody should let me in the door, okay? But I learned early along, if you come and you're polite and you seem to know what you're doing, people will kind of let you do it. And so um, early along, I, I went into one of our southern towns here and uh, went into the archive of the university and asked to see some particular papers related to Civil War figures. And to my surprise, the person said, sit here, I'll be right back, came back with an armful of cardboard boxes. And I thought, well, this is interesting, wonder what's in here. So I opened it up and found myself holding in my gritty little hands, no little gloves or anything, the original letters between famous figures. I won't name them, but it was an incredible point. Um, I remember going to West Point one time uh, when we had been invited to stay on post there for a weekend and uh, did the same thing at the West Point archives, asked the same question. They came to me with more boxes of cardboard, you know, boxes. And um, I ended up holding in my hands the original little scraps of paper, scrapped and, and just kind of scratched in pencil, the terms of surrender between General Grant and General Lee. I'm holding this in my hand. That, that tends to do some cosmic things to your head if you're a history major. It's just a, it's an incredible experience. One of these trips, I came to the bottom of a box and there was a little, a little folded up bit of paper that I thought was just kinda, maybe it's just loose in there or something. But I took it and I thought, well, I wonder what this is. And I unfolded it and it ended up being about that size, just a tiny little thing. And uh, having read it and having talked to the archivist and stuff, it turned out to be a personal letter from the wife of a very famous Civil War general to him in the field. And it, as I read it, and it's one of those things where when you read it, you, you almost feel embarrassed, like I shouldn't be reading this because it's too personal. But I'm gonna read it to you anyway, okay? 
Uh, I brought along, they made a copy of it for me. And uh, here's what it says. Now, just get the sense of this in terms of being a letter. She writes, my precious husband, um, I trust that I will see you again and be permitted to come back to you again in a few days. It doesn't say where he is or there's not a date, but we have an idea historically when this would have taken place. I must, I'm much disappointed at not seeing you again, but I commend you, my precious darling, to, that merciful, to the merciful keeping of the God of battles and do pray most earnestly for your success and the success of your army this day. Oh, that the Heavenly Father may preserve and guide and bless you is my most earnest prayer. And this, I have the shirt and the socks for you, and fearing, I brought them fearing that I may, I may not see you again. Here she is, she's thinking about shirts and socks in this momentous time in history. And she goes on to say, I hope and it may be my privilege to be with you in a few days, and our little darling, their little child, will miss her dearest papa. Um, she is so good and sweet this morning. This is intimate stuff. And then she signs off, God bless you and keep you, my darling, your devoted little wife. I'm, I have the shirt, I have the socks, and I wish I could see you. And our little baby sends her love to her papa. This is intimate stuff. And so as we get, my point is, as we come to the end of a letter, like that even, we get into some really personal points. And that's what we see here in chapter 13. Um, the writer is going to come down and say, listen, uh, you all need to remember just a few things now. Based on 12 chapters of teaching, here's some personal things that you need to follow out in your relationship with God. So let's just read um, Hebrews 13, beginning with verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as those in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have benefited those, not benefited those who've devoted to them. We have an altar for which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest 
as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, help us today as we see these um, words written to our first century brethren. Um, Help us to read them as a letter to them, but a letter to us in the 21st century. Speak to our lives, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, there on your outline then, uh, you'll see that what I've done is just kind of in, in uh, brief phrase form, uh, giving you a list of these personal admonitions, these encouragements of the writer to these Hebrew uh, believers as they begin to live out what it is that they have learned about this faith in Christ. So we'll just kind of click down that, that left-hand column and uh, make a few comments as we go. He begins by talking about loving God's family, loving the brethren. And the idea, again, of the, the notion of brethren, who, who are the brothers here, that notion has been broadened radically for these people since having come to faith in Christ. Because before that, the idea of brothers would have been their Israelite brothers, you know, those who are the literal blood of Abraham. Um, And at this point now in Christ, that that brotherhood has been broadened dramatically. And it would include all of the sons and daughters of Christ, not just those of the blood of Abraham. And so we see something like what is written here in Galatians 3. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. So they're now in the same pot as the Greeks. No no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he says, look, you know, love the brothers. And friends, your concept of brotherhood is now broadened considerably. No Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female. Love them all. And so he says, love the brethren. And so that's what we're doing. We're walking down that path and we're crying out together with each other around these tables. Abba, Father. It's the same Father that we cry out to through faith in Christ. And so um, because of our unity with Christ, we have this deep, common identity with each other that goes beyond race, goes beyond gender, it goes beyond nationality. We're all one in Christ, says the writer. And so when, when it talks about uh, loving God's family, we're used to, you know, getting along with our friends, you know, our neighbors, 
the people who have things in common with us, your frat brothers, you know, uh, the, the people you play golf with, your associates. Now, it's, it's much more important than those relationships. It's this relationship that we have as brethren and sisters in unity with Jesus Christ. And he says, let that brotherly love continue. Just continue to grow in that thing. And again, you can almost hear the, the encouragement to say, you've got a lot of growing to do. So let that, that love that you have begun to experience continue in those relationships, okay? Second one he mentions, chapter two, care for strangers in need. Um, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Interesting. Um, again, what we're talking about here is not entertaining people in the sense that you're going to invite several folks over for dinner and entertain them in that sense. Um, it's much more along the lines of what we know as the, the common Middle Eastern sense of social life. When somebody would come into your home, you would extend to them all of the hospitality that you could possibly offer them. Your home is my home. My home is your home. And if you come in here and you're my guest, I'm going to serve you and I'm going to give you the best of what I have. And so um, the idea is it really builds on that Middle Eastern social ethic that they would have already been familiar with. The fact is that Christians at this time would um, certainly have lost families. They may have lost family members to death. But they, as Hebrew Christians now, very possibly would have been completely exiled from their family lives. People would have written them off and excluded them from the social life of Israel. And so it was so important for their Christian brothers and sisters to care for strangers in need. If some Christians arrive from a different city in your town, traveling somewhere else, it was the responsibility and the privilege of the Christians to welcome them in and to show them this lovely Christian hospitality as strangers even because you are related to one another in Christ. Jesus uh, had a lawyer in the Old Testament law say, okay, Jesus, what are the greatest commandments in the law? And he says, what do you think? How do you read it? And the man says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you got it right. Now go do it. And the guy says, question, who's my neighbor? You know, a typical legal ploy with apologies to our lawyer friends. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes and tells the story of the good Samaritan at that point. At the end of which he says, so which one was the neighbor? And the man says, the one who showed grace. And Jesus says, you got it now. Go live like that. That's what we're talking about here when we talk about care for strangers in need. Show them that kind of grace. Be that kind of neighbor to your Christian brothers. And then he talks about, in doing that, some have entertained angels unawares. That's kind of an odd reference, but the readers would have understood that immediately because it probably has reference all the way back to the events of Genesis 18 and 19, where in the experience of Abraham, 
these three visitors show up at his tent one day. And it turns out that one of those visitors looked to him to be divine in some way. And he was. And so the story of Abraham and then in the next chapter, chapter 19 of Genesis, his uh, relative Lot entertaining, welcoming in these three visitors who were actually angelic figures, including the Son of God pre-incarnate, apparently. So there's a lot there to care for strangers in need and extend to them hospitality. And by the way, not to get political, but to get us thinking, you might want to think about how that exhortation affects the way that we think about and informs the way that we think about this entire immigration issue. Because a number of the immigrants that would come into the United States these days are, in fact, immigrants because they've been thrown out of their countries as Christians. So what would be the responsibility of the church toward our brothers and sisters in that situation? Just something to think about. Um, okay, let's keep going. Care for strangers in need. And then in verse 3, identify with imprisoned friends. Remember those who are in prison as those in prison with them. He's saying, listen, your brothers, your sisters, your family members are in prison. And by the way, what, oftentimes back then when they were in prison, they weren't in prison just for crimes and get, getting a 10-year or 20-year or 50-year sentence. They didn't do things that way commonly. They would, they would put people in prison for debt. Um, they would um, put them in, in there for various social uh, reasons as well. And the idea was they're going to be in there until they're able to either pay back the debt or make the restitution that was necessary to be made. And uh, you had the privilege in, in many cases of actually going and visiting and providing for the needs of your friend or your family member in prison. And so the writer is telling the Christians, hey, identify with your friends in prison as if you were there yourself. And the word there is, is really interesting. Uh, the idea is as if you were literally bound up and sitting right next to your buddy. Think about them that way. Put yourself in their place and then go and meet their needs. It's a different application than we might be able to make today. We can't go downtown and go into the cell of our, of our Christian friend and make this same kind of uh, ministry to them. But we can do other things. And some of the most fruitful ministry that you know takes place, takes place within the confines of jails and prisons. So uh, once again, I think he's just speaking to our lives and saying, remember those people. Some of them are your brothers. And remember to reach out to them and to their needs as well. And uh, we remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, speaking of the nature of the body, the way the physical body functions. If one suffers, all, all suffer. If one piece of our body is ill, it affects the entire physiology. That's true spiritually as well. If he's suffering, there's a sense in which I need to feel that suffering and meet the need of my brother, okay? Fourth point there, verse four. Now we get personal, okay? 
these uh, intimate notes in the letter. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Okay? It's so interesting that in his last words to these people, he's bringing up this issue. Really hasn't talked about it at all in the book. And we see it here in this one verse. He says, I can't let you go without saying, let marriage be held highly in honor. And I put on your outline, honor your marriage <laughs> highly. It's so easy for us to talk about marriage as a concept or, you know, some institution. It's more than that. And I do think that one of the things he was uh, writing to these people about was maintain the godly design for marriage in your society. And I think we need to be doing that as well. Okay, hold that godly design and designer high. Highly esteem it in our culture. As we should say, marriage as designed and defined by God himself. And what we do is we go back to Genesis 2. And verse 24, it just gives us a, a lovely little sentence definition of what God's design is. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's all there. The idea is that marriage is a distinctly, a, a distinct relationship between a male and a female. A man shall leave his father and mother and attach to his wife. Um, it is exclusive. Leave your father and mother. What, you, what is created in a marriage is a brand new relationship. It didn't exist before the wedding. It does now. It's exclusive to the husband and wife. It's designed distinctly between a male and a female. It's an essential unity. They shall be one flesh. There is one entity there. It's not two kind of stuck together. It is now one integrated entity, one flesh. That's what you are with your spouse if you're married. And it's permanent. It's meant to be a man will cleave, he will establish a strong bond with both back and forth together as husband and wife. And it's meant to be permanent is the idea. So we have a, a clear biblical description. And if you want to get even more convicted, we turn to Ephesians 5 and we find words like this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know what? That's our job every moment of every day, giving ourselves up for our wives. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of the water of the word, and present the church, now speaking of the church in relation to Christ, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So all you have to do every day, gentlemen, is to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Yeah. Real easy there. And so I have this reference and these words written in my prayer um, diary right next to my prayers for Heidi. And this is what it starts with. Lord, help me today to learn what it means to love her the way you love the church. 
How did, the, how did he do that? Sacrificially. And gave himself up. Tim Keller says uh, on, that, on that passage that Christian marriage is gospel reenactment. It's a husband giving himself up for the wife, a wife giving herself up for the husband, meeting each other's needs, putting the other person before them. Gospel reenactment, what Jesus did for us. And then he talks about the marriage bed, and there's, you don't need a, much of an imagination to understand what we're talking about here. It's physical relationship. And he says, and, and keep the marriage bed, that intimacy in your marriage, pure. Um, one of the, uh, I, I should say, and he goes on to say a couple of things, and I'll come back to it here. He says, let the marriage be held in honor, marriage bed be undefiled, because God's going to judge who? The sexually immoral and the adulterous. The word sexually immoral there is the word pornos. It's a word that's used in Greek to refer to a broad range of sexual sin. Anything outside of what would be considered pure, by the word of God, and it doesn't define it in detail. It says there's this whole dimension of sexual immorality called, called pornos. And he says, if we start dragging that kind of stuff into our homes, into our bedrooms, God's going to be the one who judges alongside those who are adulterers as well. Okay? It's a very clear statement. I was, um, I was taken back <clears throat> a week ago when we were talking to some of our staff across the street uh, with campus outreach who serve on the campus at University of Memphis and Rhodes College and really any college campus because um, their leaders told us as pastors that they don't deal with any, zero, they don't deal with any male students that aren't involved with pornography, okay? It's pandemic. Um, furthermore, it's becoming so in the lives of the women students as their staff work with, works with women. And um, one of the first things they have to do in discipling a new believer is talk about these issues <laughs> in their lives because it is absolutely shot through the lives of young men and women, okay? And no wonder marriage is what it is today, which is irrelevant to much of the young adult culture, okay? And you can't say that this doesn't, doesn't bear on that issue, all right? So the encouragement is honor your marriage highly. Keep your intimate relationship pure because in the end, it, and it's going to be God. It's not going to be some Snoopy church leader saying, what are you doing? You know, I got a list here. You better keep my little list of the things you can and can't do. It's not going to be like that. But God knows. And uh, he's the one who's going to deal with, uh, with us. Okay. So it's getting a little more personal, and uh, now we're going to take another step along that personal journey and talk about your money. 
in verse 6. He says, uh, keep your life, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. <laughs> um, Jesus warned more often about the dangers of money and greed than he did about sexual immorality. Isn't that interesting? Spoke more about it. That doesn't mean it's more important, but Jesus addressed the issue of money and greed more often than he did the issues of sexual immorality. Um, and the warnings, I think, that Jesus gives are often related to the idea of warning against finding your security and your identity and um, being defined by what you have and how much you have. And Jesus warned regularly about those things. Don't be identified and defined and find your identity in how much you have. Um, Luke, Luke 12, Jesus says, watch out, a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. My mom used to quote us that verse all the time. Why? I don't know. We didn't have any money. I mean, we're kids. And she said, Mikey, listen to me. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And I thought, okay, I don't know what that means, but okay. I'll, I'll tell you what, I know what it means now. It's stuck. And that's what Jesus said. You are not defined by the abundance of your possessions. Your bank account, your brokerage account, all the stuff you have in your house, what you drive. Jesus says in Luke 16, you cannot serve both God and money. If you serve money, you're a slave. Tim Keller calls that a counterfeit God. You serve money, money is your God. By the way, I'd recommend that book highly. Um, Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods. It deals with money, sex, and other relationships in our lives that we replace God with. Um, there's a, there's a great verse when we, when we think about this um, particular encouragement where Jesus um, actually becomes the heart of the discussion. Let me just read it to you. This is 2 Corinthians 8 9. Paul is writing uh, to the, the Corinthians and um, he's encouraged them to be generous, you know, that's never a popular bit of preaching. But in the process of uh, encourage, encouraging the Corinthian believers to be generous, he says this. He brings in the gospel, 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that for your sake... And by your, his poverty, you might become rich. Let me say it another way. If he stayed rich, we would die poor, spiritually. If he died poor, which he did, we would become spiritually rich. He uses this actual metaphor of money to apply to the gospel message and says, Jesus was rich, he became poor. 
And when he became poor, you became rich because of his grace. Jesus gave up all of his treasure in heaven to make you and me his treasure. Beautiful stuff. So the message to the the believers is don't worship money. It it requires a change of heart. You can't just sit down and decide, well, I'm not going to worship money anymore. I'm not going to do it. There's, There's a deep sin there when we begin to worship stuff in our lives more than God. And it's a, it, that level of, of deep idolatry can only be rooted out by the replacing it of grace. And the Holy Spirit brings to bear in our lives that kind of grace as we look to him. So there's a lot we could say there, but it's an encouragement. Be content with what you have. Uh, he ends up the passage. In First in Timothy, there's a lovely statement about contentment. It says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and through this craving some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sufferings. The love of money. But then he goes on to say, Storing up for themselves good treasures on a foundation that will take a hold of true eternal life in their, in their lives is what he's, he's really after. Verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So the notion is generosity, not idolatry when it comes to our money. True security is found where, at the end of that verse, the writer drops in, for he has said, the he in that verse is Christ. I have said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, this is a a lovely connection. What he's saying is, is this. Don't put your faith in money. It's not worthy of your ultimate faith. And by the way, It's going to come, and it's going to go. Anybody notice? But he says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I am not subject to the whims of the market. Those things aren't going to drive me. That is not where my identity will be. My identity will be in the one who will never leave me or forsake me. True security is found only in God's character and the promise that he won't leave us. Okay? All right. Just a couple more. Verses 7 and 8. I've stated there for you, imitate seasoned leaders. Imitate seasoned leaders. Um, there are people in your lives, as you look back, that uh, may stand out as people that God really has used to move you forward in your relationship with him. And he, said, he uses three words, and I've noted them for you here. He says, remember, consider, imitate. Remember, first of all, look back on those who spoke the word of God to you, Okay? No more important function in our lives but to have 
those who's God, who, who God has placed in our lives to just do what we're doing right now. Have the word of God pumped into our souls. Look back, he says, look back and remember the people who, who were doing those things in your life. And you can do that. That's a great exercise, in fact, to look back and remember the grace of God at work through the people in your life who he used to speak the word of God into your life, okay? Um, by the way, speak the word of God, period. It's interesting. That's the focus of his encouragement to these, these believers. There are people who are going to speak the word of God to, into your life, and there are others who are going to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. He says, let go of all that other stuff and listen carefully to the guys, the men and women who are speaking the word of God into your life. Remember those people. Remember them, your leaders, and then consider, consider what? The outcome of their way of life. The outcome of their way of life, okay? That's why I put here, imitate seasoned leaders. People who you look at their lives and they've been doing this for decades and decades and decades faithfully. They may not be nationally known. They may not have a radio show. They may not write a bunch of books. People may never have heard of these folks that you know God used to pour his word into your life. He says, remember those people and consider carefully is the word there. Microscope what it was that allowed them to be such faithful, godly people for such a long time, okay? Um, you're looking for long faithfulness and consistency of alignment between teaching and living. There are a precious few of those around. And if you can call some of those to mind, bless God for those people. That's what he's telling these folks to do for their faithfulness over time. Remember, consider, and then imitate. He says, imitate their faith, not imitate that person. You know why? The person at some point is going to let you down, right? We're sinners. Our leaders are sinners. And even as they pursue God's purposes in all that they do, they are going to mess up somewhere along the line. And so if we are imitating the man, we're going to be disappointed. But he says, imitate their faith. Look at the big, long picture of what allowed them to be faithful over those long periods of time and imitate that long-term faith. Um, there are guys, when we have a thing called presbytery in the Presbyterian church. It's the gathering of all the pastors in a geographical area. And um, we meet together quarterly. And when we get together, there's no more humbling time for me than to sit among that gathering of, of other pastors. Because so many of them are serving in places way out, not in Memphis and in big cities. They're serving small congregations spread out all over the South. And nobody's saying, oh, Mr. Jones over here in whatever city, you, you should hear him. He's fantastic, man. Nobody's saying that kind of stuff about him. These are guys who are just laboring faithfully over long periods of time. 
And they're not looking for approval or, you know, all kinds of, of recognition. They're just doing it. And I sit among those guys and I just feel like throwing ashes on my own head and saying, God, make me like these men. Uh, so remember, consider, imitate their faith, their long-term faithfulness. Um, and he says, because the true pattern, once again, he draws us back to Jesus in verse 8. And he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't imitate the man, but remember Jesus. Keep Jesus in mind as you see them at work. Okay? Now, um, one last statement under that section then. Be strengthened by grace in verse 9. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Um, you know, there's all kinds of weird stuff floating around all the time, right? Where I come from in California, uh, it, it is the genesis of all weirdness, okay? <laughs> On every level. Spiritually, if you want to study spiritual weirdness, that's the place to go. I mean, it's just it, the, the vast array of nonsense is just astonishing. He says, look, and my encouragement here is, as you see in your notes, stick with the clear teaching. He tells these, these Hebrew believers, look, you're going to hear all kinds of stuff. And uh, he makes the mention here of... Um, be strengthened by grace and not by foods which have benefited those who are devoted to them. Foods? He doesn't even explain what he's talking about here when he talks about foods. Okay? There was a, some kind of a food cult. And he says, don't mess with that stuff. Don't mess with that crazy stuff. But let your heart be strengthened by grace. Wherever you are, whoever is speaking the word of God to you, please make sure that you're hearing a lot of the word grace because that is what strengthens our hearts, he says. Not the nonsense, not the funny business. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. And if it's not main, and if it's not plain, don't mess with it, okay? Um, the essentials is what it is that we're all about. The basics. Guys, we can't go wrong if we stick with the basics of Christian doctrine, okay? Don't bother with the weird stuff and the funny stuff and the, the new stuff and all that kind of stuff. Don't bother with it. The main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. Let's just keep moving here and we'll finish up. Two more sections, and I'm just going to um, summarize these for you because there's, there's a lot said. In the section... We're looking at there in verses 10 through 14. Here's what happens. The writer of this letter just can't sign off. He can't end the letter without one more time uh, going at the issue of redemption by Christ in the context and in the words of the Old Testament sacrifices. So he does it again. He just can't not do it. So he does it again in these last few verses, in verses 10 through 14. And um, 
He's talking once again about reminding them about Jesus' work of atonement and his sacrificial um, uh, work for us. And he talks about, once again, the high priest. He talks about blood. He talks about animal sacrifices whose bodies are taken outside the city and burned. And um, all, this, all these familiar references that he's made all throughout the book of Hebrews. Let me just summarize it for you in a few remarks, okay? When we talk about Christ's atonement and the city to come. One, the symbolism here in these verses, verses 10 through 14, probably come to us as um, the day of atonement, having the day of atonement in mind, all the way back to Leviticus 16. So what the terminology and the description here probably is rooted in the, in the Day of Atonement. And George has talked and taught us about that numerous times. He says, the, the writer says, but we, verse 10, we have an altar, we being new Christians. Now the idea is once that we've moved along and away from the Hebrew Old Covenant um, manner of worship with sacrifices and animals and high priests and blood and everything. He says, but we still have an altar. The Christian altar is what? The cross. He says, brothers, we still have an altar. There is no other access to that altar other than by faith in the one who's being sacrificed on it. Jesus. And so he says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat. They need to come on level ground, the same as all of us, to faith in the one on the Christian altar, the cross. Okay? And then he says these things. The blood that he refers to here points us to the death of the blameless substitute for our sins. In, in the Old Testament, it was the goat. In our covenant, it has to do with the cross. He uh, speaks of burned animal bodies being dumped and burned outside the city. That has reference to the idea that it indicates that those substitutes bore sin, okay? And their blood having been shed, they were burned because they now bore figuratively um, the sin of the people, and they were burned. Jesus suffering outside the city gate that's referred to here, that actually happened in history, right? When Jesus was taken outside the city to Calvary, that's where his sacrifice occurred. That's where that blood was shed. And um, it is, again, symbolizing the work of the uh, Day of Atonement and the sacrifice that took place within the old covenant system. And he says that in all that we may lose, finally, our identity is not rooted in anything on earth. Um, look at verse 14. He just reminds them and says, now guys, just remember, remember the journey that we're all on. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And you say, city? What, what, what are we talking about here? Hey, brothers, it's the same reference, and it's the same city that he spoke to uh, back in chapter 11 
when, in the case of Abraham, the writer says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. No more tents, no more wandering around in the sand. We're looking for a city that has foundations, who has a designer and a builder, and it's God, and he's taken us there. And then later in chapter 11, he says, but as it is, these, these dear old covenant saints desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He tells the dear brothers in chapter 13, look, we have no lasting city here, but we seek that city that Abraham was traveling to, that we're all, by faith in Christ, being brought to. We seek that city together. So, we have an altar, Christ's atonement. And that last uh, point there, number three, simply this. He says, now, on the basis of all that, dear brethren, you can actually offer a sacrifice to God. We've talked a lot about sacrifices and blood and animals and all that. We have a sacrifice to give to God. Those last two verses, verses 15 and 16. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Continually, all the time. Not just on Sunday. Not just on holy days where people come to church. Continually. You go out that door, you go to your office or wherever you're going. In that process, you can continually be offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Wherever he takes you, wherever your life is lived, you can be offering up this lovely sacrifice of praise to God for his goodness in your life. And then in verse 16, and don't neglect to do good and share what you have. Just final reminder. Wherever you're going, people should see something of Christ in the way that you're living and treating other people. Don't neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. People will see that. And what they're seeing is not just some moralistic, legalistic guy, but they're seeing Jesus Christ. And you're offering Jesus Christ a sacrifice of your own by living in the way that he's just described. So, dear brothers, just let's, let's as we go, listen, consider, think what it may be that God is saying about these gospel ethics in terms of the way that we live our lives in the 21st century as our dear brothers did way back in century one. And remember that, as George said in concluding last week, all of these things are products of the grace of God changing us. We don't change ourselves to do any of this. It's his grace at work in us.